This is Faith and Fable, a pastoral podcast where we discuss common and often controversial topics from a biblical perspective. I'm Lena. I'm Matt Henry. I'm Matt Miller. And I'm Mark. Today we are marshalling our evidence for the right view of when the church began. The only view. What is the right view? It began in Acts 2 at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Bam. Pentecost. Pentecost. Yes. So this is our position. And we're holding to it. We're sticking to it. Yep. And we are going to attempt to give some evidence, marshal some evidence for why we believe that the church did indeed begin in Acts chapter 2 at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And we have uh, six pieces of evidence. So we're just going to walk through them and give some concluding thoughts. So what is our first piece of evidence? Well, the first piece of evidence, (laughs) I don't know. How do you introduce this? Um, There was an indication that the church was yet future in the time of Christ. Um, And this comes from Matthew 16, uh, verse 8, Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ at Caesarea Philippi, right? Yeah, yeah. So, Mark, you want to read verses 15 through 19 of chapter 16? Yeah, I got that for you. All right, I got that right here. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood do not did not reveal this to you, but my Father has who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. All right, so... In verse 18 is the key there. He says, I also say to you that you're Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Uh, By the way, it's interesting. I don't know if we have these in our notes. There's only three times that the word church or ecclesia is used in the Gospels. And one of them, obviously, is here. But that's the key one. Um, Upon this rock I will build my church. Now, I'm going to let you explain the grammar of that because you got a word in here that I am intrigued by. And you don't, you know, you don't have to use the word. Yeah, but it's there, and I want you to use. It. I want the other people to know what it's like to work behind the microphone with a man of your intellect. Oh, oh man! My goodness gracious. Okay, so this is a this is a future indicative. Okay, future indicative. That's the now, that uh, part I know. Okay, <laughs> so well, explain it. I don't know. What yeah, so okay, the verb "I will build" um, it's it's a future indicative. So it's an indicative that which means that it's a fact or it's a reality. There's absolute certainty in this statement, and so it's it's more far more than just a simple wish or desire. It's a statement right. of right. of truth. Mm-hmm. Um, this is something that that will happen. In other words, um, and then also it's future. Um, so the formal tense of the verb is that it's a future tense, which means it's grammaticalizing expectation. That is a fascinating word, and I don't want to get off the topic. I've never heard of that until yeah. you wrote it, and I thought it was a fake word. So and then you Google, be, and then you and then I, No, I duck, duck, goed it. Oh, you duck, duck, No, word, uh, Microsoft Word thinks it's a fake uh, word. word. Yeah. Google understands this to be a real word. So does duck, duck, go. Duck, duck, go. 
Pretty good. Which is a far would better you, search engine. Would you trust Microsoft or Google? Well, I, don't, I don't trust either. Listen, I just trust myself. What does Apple say? That's what I would trust. No. <laughs> okay. When it comes to this kind of stuff, I trust Matt. I really do. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, um, so there, there's an expectation here. That means it's it's um, containing the concept that this is to happen in the future. There's an expectation here. Right. So it's a fact. Yeah. It's a future fact. Yeah. It's not yet happening right there. Right. Um, so Christ here, the one speaking, who knows all things, he is certain, indicative, that this building of his church will happen in the future. Right. And that's the point to understand, that this is a yet future reality here in uh, Matthew chapter 16. Um, okay, oh, but go ahead and build on that. Yeah, now a person, just given that, could argue that um, Christ will build his church in the future, but that doesn't necessarily negate the fact that perhaps um, the church came into being at this moment, or for that matter that it was already existing. Um, it's just simply declaring that the building of this church is going to happen sometime in the future. So it's, it's existing now, but the building of that, um, the flourishing of that, whatever that might mean, is something that could still happen in the future. That, that's an argument that people um, will come back at you with. Um, yeah, but the problem with that is that then they're, what they're saying is the church has come into being, but it's stagnant because it's not yeah. being that's built it. up or it's something. Just, yeah. it, I mean, that's an argument of a person who doesn't want to just let the text say what it's saying. So yeah. they're saying, yeah, but so what? Mm -hmm. And you're like, I don't know what to say to that. Yeah. Um, it, it also makes very little conceptual sense. Um, why would Christ bring the church into being and then just let it sit sit there until some future point when he then builds Yeah, that makes no church. sense. Um, so, so the moment that the church comes into being in Acts 2, which is what we're arguing for, we see there that the God, which is the content of the entire book of Acts, mm -hmm. is that the gospel, ha there's this immediate spread. There's a rapid growth. There's an explosive expanse. In other words, it's sudden, it's rapid. There's a building that takes place there. Mm -hmm. um, and so the moment that it comes into being, we see this rapid expanse. See, that's one of those things that's so obvious, but you, it's so obvious you don't even notice it, but that you're right. Mm -hmm. That's the whole point of the book of Acts is, Something happens in Acts 2. And it can't be contained. And yeah, yeah. it explodes outwards. Yeah. Um, furthermore, when you look at how the term build um, in, in its verb tense is used elsewhere in the New Testament, it's clear that it's always speaking of an entire process as a yet future reality. Right, um, right. So just to give a couple of examples, um, Luke 12 in verse 18, um, it says, and he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and I will build larger ones, and there I will store all my grains and all my goods. Um, so clearly here, you first have to tear down something before you can build something. So yeah, it's not saying that I built it and I've let it sit there and now I'm going right. to... Or I've started it and right. I'm going to later build... I mean, right. what are we even talking about at that point? Right. Um, same thing with Mark 14 and verse 58. We hear him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Again, there's a destroying that must first happen, which hasn't happened yet, before the building can take place. So, so this building is a yet future reality, and those are future indicatives. Um, so again, th these passages would make little sense if we're trying to make um, the future tense in the Greek anything other than future. Um, the entire process is future-oriented. In fact, every single time, which is only three in the Gospels, that the church has mentioned, it's either explicitly or contextually, it's future. Yeah. It's something that's not yet. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, and yet somehow Adam is in the church. Right. Like, what? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so with that, um, to try to make the church exist prior to um, the statement of Christ in um, Matthew chapter 16 would require an enormous amount of explanation apart from the clear meaning and plain meaning of the text. Yeah. Um, but what happens in that view is usually the opposite. Um, you know, there's a lot of theological argument that's made that the passage can't just mean what it says. And I would say the reason for that is because a person's theology is demanding that the text doesn't mean what it says. Now, that's important to notice. Um, a little point of reference I'll just throw in here. Um, a lot of times when you hear a person take a passage that seems so clear and then spend a lot of time telling you why it can't mean that, a lot of times it's exactly what you just said. It's theologizing. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, though, you do need to listen carefully to what the person is saying and see how much of it is uh, explaining away what the text actually is saying. That's theologizing versus showing you that you're not looking carefully at what the text actually is saying. Meaning, sometimes people will take a verse and say, try to make it say something, and it looks on, on the surface, very simple. God loves the world. That means in some way. Right. Right. Yeah. It's that's like, good, that's well, let's slow down. Yeah. Let's look at what, what does it mean that God so loved the world? And, and let's break that down. Um, so, yeah, that's different. So, what does love mean? What yeah, does world what, mean? How does John use the term world? Right. All of these things come to bear on Right. It. Yeah. There's logical um, connectors in there. What do they mean? So, there you, it requires you to do a lot of explanation of the text, mostly because people have used that text so casually yeah. that they've basically put a meaning into it that's not mm -hmm. there. That's right. not the same as what you're saying. You're right. talking about, here's a text that's very simple. Future tense, it's in the indicative, I will build my church. And somehow it's not future. Yeah. And like... That takes a whole lot of explanation. <laughs> a lot. Yeah. And it's almost all going to be, well, it's all going to be theology. Yeah. Yeah. So what what we say is you, you need to develop a theology from the text rather than requiring... Yeah the theology to demand meaning of the text. And this, again, it becomes a challenge because that's work. Yeah, very, very much so. Um, okay, so that's the first piece of evidence. Um, Se second one? Yeah, um, go for it. The Bible's clear, and, and I agree with that word, clear, that the church is to be uniquely indwelt by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, if you wish. Um, we did a whole previous podcast on, on the nature of the Spirit indwelling. And we talk about the differences of the Spirit's ministry even between Old Testament Israel yeah. and the New Testament church. Um, but that cannot, that cannot be understated. Um, the thing that s separates a church out from Israel is that unique relationship it has with the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Or, or to put it the other way, the, the unique work of the Spirit in the New Testament seems to indicate that there, there then is a difference between the church and Israel. Right. Yeah. Right. So John 14 through 16, those chapters, um, Jesus is promising there that the Holy Spirit will come, abide with them, but also in them. Mm -hmm. um, so he heightens that expectation. It's not nearly, it's not near, nearly, <laughs> merely um, the Spirit uh, being with them or among them, but yeah. literally he will be in you, in, in you. them. Yeah. Um, so when we try to find the point in time when that act occurs, the only time that can fit is the day of Pentecost. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, evidence for that is Acts 1 8. 
Um, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Again, here's that expansion of the gospel. And it's interesting because in chap- in Acts, whereas only three times um, the word church is even referenced in the gospels and then all of a sudden explodes mm-hmm. in Acts and it starts all with this future moment when the spirit comes upon. Yep. And that's what Christ is telling them. Look, relax, wait, and the spirit's going to come. And when it does, everything's going to change. Yeah. Yeah, we see that. And in, immediately church. Yeah, yeah. We see it, for instance, in Acts 2-4 as well. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And what? They began to speak with other tongues or languages as the spirit was giving them utterance. Um, again, this is something unique, something unprecedented that didn't formally happen with the nation of Israel. Acts one thirty eight. Peter said to them, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and what? And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So again, here's here's the, the coming to fruition, that promise of Jesus back in John, when he said the Spirit will be among you, but now also in you to perform these unique acts. Um, you know, we did talk about this. By the way, that's Acts 2, not 1. Uh, two, 38. 238, you're right. I put the wrong reference, I'm yeah. sorry. Um. So, so in the Old Testament, the Spirit would come upon people, right, for special power to accomplish a specific task, but, but there's no indication of the Old Testament believers having the Holy Spirit indwelling in them like we see in the New Testament. And again, the podcast we did on, yeah. on the relation or, or the role of the Spirit, yeah. right? Now, is that to say that they weren't regenerate? No. No. No, everyone is made alive by the Spirit, but that's not the same thing. This is why you have to be careful and use your theology. When you're sloppy with your terms, then you get yourself into trouble. Regeneration is not indwelling. Indwelling is not being baptized with the Spirit. Being baptized with the Spirit is not, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So there's specific roles happening in the New Testament that weren't happening in the old. Right. And so that that then would indicate that there's something new happening. Um, right. There's something different, um, which is the church ultimately. Um, so all that to say is, is the church is, is to be marked by this unique indwelling of the ministry of the spirit that's clear from Jesus. And that doesn't happen until at least Pentecost, um, according to scripture. This was prophesied certainly in Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31, speaking of the new covenant. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, there was to be a, a new fresh, unprecedented outpouring of the spirit, which would mark the new covenant. And therefore, um, as we would argue, new beginnings of the church, God's new covenant people. This is again, distinct from the nation of Israel. In fact, I would argue that you can't really make a distinction between the, out, the, the, the coming of the new covenant and the indwelling of the spirit there. Yeah. One of those, well, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It, in, yeah. Inextricably connected. Yes. Bound together. <laughs> um, you want to do the third one? Sure. Let me find it. So the third piece of evidence then is those who believe in Jesus Christ uh, have a unique relationship with him. Um, and this gets into that whole idea of being in Christ or our union with Christ. Um, it, it's interesting because it's not a term that will occur in the Gospels. It's not even a term that's talked about in Acts. It's really a Pauline primarily uh, term. Um, it's a doctrine, though, that gets developed in the letters that were written to the various churches. That's key. It's As the churches were being scattered about and they needed to be instructed, one of the things that um, the apostles would do in their writing would emphasize this connection and unique relationship that they had with Christ. Yeah. Um, 
And so this term in Christ is something that's never applied to those in the Old Testament. They, they're not in God. They're not in the Spirit. They're yeah. not in Christ. They're, it, it's a completely different kind of relationship. Um, and again, this gives additional weight to the idea that there's something very, very unique that's occurring um, now with Christ that didn't occur before. And, and it's to a specific group of people. It's those who have trusted in Jesus and have therefore been regenerated right, regenerated by the Spirit, but also indwelt by the Spirit. Yeah. And, and the Bible always refers to those people as Christians and the church. Yeah. Um, a fourth piece of evidence then to um, argue that the church begins post-Acts chapter 2 um, is the reality of the gifts of the Spirit. Um, 1 Corinthians 12 repeatedly speaks of these gifts as being of the Spirit. Um, and, and yet in Ephesians 4, 7, um, and following me, uh, we see how this applies to this idea of the church beginning at Pentecost specifically and with a unique outpouring of the Spirit. Um, you want to read Ephesians 4, 7 through 13? Yeah, I'll take that one. But, e but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who has descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which we belong to the fullness of Christ. Yeah, thanks. So in, in verse 8, the point here to understand is that it's Jesus who's giving these gifts. And then notice also this in verse 8 occurs after he ascended. Um, so it's after he ascended, he gives these gifts to the church. And so this, this seems to indicate then that when the church came to being was after um, Acts 2. Um, with that coming of the Spirit. Further, in 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 11, Paul is speaking of the gifts of the Spirit. Um, and in verse 12, he makes it clear that he's referring to the body, um, which is the church, of course. And so in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, it says, For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, um, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. Um, so, so in light of that, it, it is right to conclude that the church is, is a unique entity that's a recipient of the gifts of the Spirit, and that this couldn't have occurred until after Christ died, rose, ascended, and sent forth His Spirit, which again, all of which doesn't happen until at least Acts chapter 2. Right, right. And so then there's a, a fifth one, um, and that's, I mean, it's so obvious. Um, Christ is called the head of the church. And so the point that you have to ask is, at what point does the Bible say Christ became the head of the church? Mm -hmm. And and Ephesians one is Ephesians is a really important <laughs> book. Yeah. Um, Ephesians one eighteen to twenty three. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power towards us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, 
which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So verse 22 is very clear. Yeah, he put all things in subjection under his feet. The father did that uh, and gave him as head over all things to the church. So it's the father giving Christ as head to the church, but it's after he went back to heaven um, and it was seated at the right hand of the father. This is exactly what happens in Acts 2. Mm -hmm. He tells him, stay here. Don't worry about what time and epochs and everything else. Just stay here and the spirit will come and then he ascends to heaven. Um, this makes no sense if the church has always been around. The only way you could say it is that somehow Jesus's, um, until Jesus ascended, that the church was walking around without its head. Yeah. And and somebody's going to try to say, well, no, no, he was doing it from up in heaven. But it's like, once again, I mean, from all eternity, but once again, you're now... Grammar means nothing, right? Yeah, you're not you're not dealing with the specifics of how the Bible talks about. Yeah, it. you're you're trying to argue theologically rather than, yeah, that's right. He didn't. He wasn't the head and life. I mean, the whole New yeah. Testament Christology and ecclesiology shows that Christ is our life. That's Colossians three, and that through Him we find our life and being, and uh, that's how we become living stones, like. First Peter one talks about so very frustrating um, if if you're gonna try to say no 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 yeah uh, somehow he was the church has always been around even though he wasn't the head of it so right. one more yeah the last piece of evidence um, there's a new work that's being done that's never been done before and so this comes from Ephesians two eleven <laughs> yeah Ephesians so, so do you think Ephesians, Ephesians. Um, do you think it was Paul's Sort of magnum opus, or do you think Romans was as his? Okay, so when I preached through Romans, I argued that Romans was his theology. <laughs> yeah. Until yeah. I began to actually preach it, and I realized it's not his the theological treatise. It's actually all about the Jew and the Gentile relationship, right, right. and that requires theology. Ephesians um, is his systematic theology. It's mm -hmm. it's wicked. Yeah. Deep. <laughs> Very rich. Wicked. Um, so, so with oh, this one, shut up. <laughs> um, get him, get him, Lena, get him. Um, okay, I'm going home. <laughs> so, uh, six piece of evidence. Um, there's a new work being done that's never been done before. So, this is a little bit longer passage, but as Mark reads it, yep. um, mm -hmm. pay attention to this uh, Jew Gentile relationship. Okay. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments containing ordinances so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, 
having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. Okay, so it's a very emphatic passage of Paul here. And what's he saying? He's saying that this dividing wall um, has been broken. And so he makes this explicit point that the Jew-Gentile distinction is no longer an issue when it comes to the church. Can I jump in there? Sure. There's a passage, we don't have in our notes, but it's it's really fascinating because that's the point. Yeah. There's no longer a distinction between the Jew and the Gentile in Christ. They're one in Christ. Right. Correct. But it's, so it's, it ties all of that yeah. stuff we talked about, our, our union with Christ. But there's a passage also in uh, Matthew 10, verse 5, where Christ is sending the 12 out, the 12 disciples. And he, he says this, he says, do not go into the go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He, there, when he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom, he is forbidding them. This is not for the Gentiles. This is not for the Samaritans. This is only for the house of Israel. Mm-hmm. And that that's... and. It, so what happened? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Something radically happened Major. when Christ is forbidding them to do that. And now Paul is saying there is no distinction anymore because mm-hmm. Christ is making all kinds of distinctions there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Boy, yeah. the social justice would not like that one. Yeah. But um, so just— They'd love Luke 4, though. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so, um, but what he's doing here is he's making— um, saying that there's there's no longer these distinctions, right. these separations right, right. between Israel and, and the Gentile. They're all equal— this is something, again, unique to the church. Um, I would also add, um, hasten to add that this was not true when Gentiles were converted yeah. to Judaism in the Old Testament Israel. There was still no. this great distinction between the two. But Paul is saying here very emphatically, no more. You're now one. You're one house being built up together. Where? In Christ. Um, also, interestingly, um, in verse 15, he speaks of the new creation or this new man. Um, and he uses a very important word. He uses the term kainos. Um, mm-hmm. And kainos in Greek, um, it, it, it can translate as new, but in a unique way. He, he's saying that it's something different, completely different than before. Um, so this new thing is not like the old thing. It's just new. It's unique. Um, contrast that with the other Greek term that we can translate as new, which is the term neos. Um, and that term means that this is just something updated, right. recent, something newer, a newer version, if you will. Um, but Paul uses the term kainos, and his point is not to try and make the Gentiles as now part of Israel or or this new true, quote, true Israel. Which your covenant theology will, will try to do is yeah. that what the church is is just now the new spiritual Israel or they true Israel it, yeah. or something else. Yeah. Um, rather, in the way that Paul constructs it here, it's this joyful announcement that there's something completely new going on in its new entity. This yeah. is unique. This is far more than simply some kind of updated Israel. Um, rather, it's an utterly new creation that's completely different than, than what was former, which is Israel itself. In fact, Paul even says that this is a mystery mm-hmm. that was, has been revealed. It was. It wasn't even understood. The angels even. Yeah. Long to look into see what would happen. Yeah. Can you imagine being an angel and every time you think you got figured out? <laughs> yeah. He's like, oh, he just did that. <laughs> yeah. Huh. So, all right, let's bring it all home. Yeah. So that's all of our evidence. Um, we've marshaled it and uh, do with that what you will with what you will. Um, but in our view, this lends toward understanding that the church did indeed begin at Pentecost in Acts chapter two with the outpouring of the Spirit. 
Um, all sides are going to bring their evidence, um, but we think these are the strongest and, and this is the important one for us, makes the most exegetical sense of the biblical data when you examine it critically. Um, if we're just going to impose a theological system over it and interpret the text how we want, then I don't know what we're doing. But if we truly well, let, yeah, yeah. yeah, if we truly let our understanding of this stuff be developed from the text, um, we think this is the best view. And and part of the reason why we're spending the time doing this is because there's going to be future podcasts where we're going to be dealing with other subjects that um, matter, but they matter in the context of the church and the nation of Israel. I mean, when we're looking at Old Testament prophecies related to Israel, um, we're actually dumb enough to think they really mean Israel, that, yeah. that they're not spiritualized now to mean the church. Um, at the same time, when we look at something like the New Testament ordinance of baptism, we're just not going to try to make it actually be the Old Testament circumcision now updated for the new Israel. It's not. Yeah. Um, there, there's consequences. The yeah. Yeah. All the time we're going to see that. So it's important that the listeners, even if they disagree with us, that's fine. But at least disagree with us on the level of the textual basis and evidence, rather, um, not just because your theology demands it. I don't care what your Westminster Co Confession says, in other words. Um, it, that's, not, that's not scripture. Let's look at this text and see what does it say. Yeah. Yep. Um, so then just one kind of final point here is, is the church, um, since Acts chapter 2 then is God's current ordained expression of his presence and glory, and also then his mouthpiece. Um, it's through the economy of the church that God's right now calling all men, women, and children everywhere to repent. It's through this entity, this new entity called the church. Um, and so, of course, when, when you talk that way, there's a lot of questions now that happen regarding how the church works out then with relation to Israel, um, especially in the final age um, when God sums all things up in Christ. And so, the question, which is a good question and a natural question, becomes, will there then be two or up to three groups of people in heaven? Um, is there going to be pre-Israel and then this section of Israel and then this section called the church? Um, and that's a very fair question. And we don't have the time to develop all that. It's its, its own topic. But we essentially see that there's going to be one group of people in heaven called the people of God. Yeah. In the end, it's all get just going to get summed up in all the redeemed yeah. The people of God. Yeah. Right? Um, and so the, these three groups were different ways in which the economy of God works itself out through through the various times. But in the end, as I said, they're all summed up in Christ. Um, they have their salvation in Christ. Romans talks about how the redemption of Israel comes through the blood of Christ. Um, so everything's summed up in Christ. And the church is simply one of these. And in our view, began in Acts chapter 2. Mm -hmm.